0: CS presents Into the Twilight Zone. My name is Corey Cummings, and I'm your host. On this new show, I'll be watching every episode of The Twilight Zone and dedicating an episode of the podcast to each one. I'll be using the indispensable Twilight Zone Companion, written by Mark Scott Zickry, The Twilight Zone Encyclopedia by Stephen Rubin, and Martin Graham's Jr.'s weighty tome, The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, to guide and supplement my journey. In each episode, I'll be providing my thoughts, feelings, analyses, along with relevant background info pulled from those three texts. Additionally, I'll be opening the show to guests. This means that if there's an episode you know you love and want to talk about, you should contact me. I'll also be reaching out to potential guests as well with the hope that a substantial percentage of future episodes will feature someone fun for me to chat with. For today's episode, I wanted to provide some historical background info for the show and discuss its inimitable creator. Rod Serling. Rodman Edward Serling was born on Christmas Day in 1924 in Syracuse, New York. From an incredibly early age, friends described him as extremely extroverted, Growing up, Serling was involved in anything he could try out for in school. Clubs, productions, sports, you name it. After graduating high school, Rod joined the army and was sent into combat in the Pacific. As Zikri writes in The Twilight Zone Companion, quote, Without World War II, there's no way of knowing whether Serling would have become a writer. But the war both broadened his experience and placed an emotional pressure on him that demanded catharsis. It's clear that Serling's time in the military led him to develop the fears and concerns that would later define his work. For example, his concern for humanity's future, his belief that human connection was vital, and that the horrors and injustices found in our world should have a light shined upon them so that humanity could grow and move past them. Serling is quoted as saying, I'd been injured with the paratroopers, and I was bitter about everything and at loose ends when I got out of the service. I think I turned to writing to get it off my chest. While he was in the service, Serling had written scripts for the army radio. So after leaving the military, radio seemed like the right fit. Serling attended Antioch college in yellow Springs, Ohio while seeking a degree in language and literature. Serling became the manager of the school's radio station. And by 1949, all the station's content was being written, produced and directed by Serling with all original scripts. Even then, Serling was showcasing the incredibly prolific output that would later result in 92 of the 156 total Twilight Zone episodes being written by Serling himself. During this time, Serling met his wife of 27 years, Carol, and after graduation they moved to Cincinnati, where Serling became a staff writer at WLW Radio. Serling was not happy with the work at WLW and was desperate to break free so that he could write material that he cared about and could be proud of. In 1951, Serling left the radio station to try and break into the world of TV as a writer, which was much easier to do back then. Anthology shows were all the rage during this time, and in his first year of freelancing, Rod sold scripts to shows like Hallmark Hall of Fame, Lux Video Theater, Kraft Television Theater, Suspense, and Studio One. Despite some of his early work being described by Serling himself as, quote, pretty bad stuff, they revealed a concern for people who were searching for an emotional truth and there was usually an attempt to make a statement on the human condition. This kind of writing was not the norm for this period. In the Twilight Zone Companion, Zickry provides a sample of a typical night of programming with plots concerning Superman's identity being threatened by a dog or a man being discouraged from collecting tropical fish as a hobby on an episode of I Married Joan. Due to his progressive and unique style and thematic concerns, Serling very quickly caught the eye of television critics. In 1955, Serling's 72nd TV script was presented on Kraft Television Theater. The name of the show was Patterns, and it was a smash hit. The show had a simple premise. Three men are vying for control of a major corporation. As Zickory writes, quote, it was simple, direct, and tremendously powerful. Critics agreed, hailing it as one of the high points in the evolution of TV as a medium. A creative triumph, showcasing sheer power of narrative, forcefulness of characterization, and a brilliant climax.
1: I have no interest whatever in the Phillips matter. What was that? I'm telling you that I don't want the job. I'm through. I'm quitting. I resign as of now. Why? Because I hate your guts. You used Bill Briggs for a whipping boy. You made him knuckle under and then you beat him to death. You wouldn't try anything like that with me because I'd kill you first. I'm not a nice human being. What else? You're nothing but a freak. You drive your people into peak efficiency if they can make it or a grave if they can't. Because Bill Briggs lacked the strength and the capacity. He was second in command. He had a lot of responsibility to hold and he cracked up. it. It was his business too. It's no one's business. It belongs only to the best. To those who can control it, sustain it, nurture it, keep it growing. Right now it belongs to us because we're producing. But in the future it belongs to whoever has the brains, the nerve and the skill to take it away from us. Well, they can have my share of it right now because I don't want any part of it. What do you want from me? Apologies? I don't apologize. What else? A nice unsullied conscience. You walk out of here with a halo because you spoke your mind. What do you do then? Go to work for some nickel and dime outfit run by nice people who won't challenge you and prod you and goad you and drive you to a height you never even dreamed of? A company where there's nothing to fight for because you're the best and there's no competition? Where everything is handed to you? And nothing is worth fighting for? I want you to stay. I don't think you understand, Ramsay. I don't like you. I don't like anything about you. I didn't hire you to like me. All right, I'm not a nice person in your eyes. But whatever I am, you learn more, grow more, and do more here with me than anywhere else on earth. I want you to stay because I need help on my level. And you're the only one who's able to function there. Be your conscience for me if you want. Be anything you like. And if it's something I don't like, you'll know about it soon enough. I think you're strong enough to take it. And if not, I think you're strong enough to get out. Name your terms. All terms are negotiable. I don't think so.
0: Not mine. In an unprecedented move, Patterns was performed live a second time, just under a month after the original broadcast, because public demand was so high. A movie version was released just over a year later. From this point on, Serling was a hot commodity. That year, he sold 20 of his plays to television and wrote his first film, Screenplay. In 1956, CBS debuted Playhouse 90, a 90-minute weekly series that aimed to produce television of a quality that had never been seen before. CBS wanted the best writers, directors, and actors for their new venture. The second of Serling's scripts produced for Playhouse 90 was Requiem for a Heavyweight, which told the story of a washed-up boxer played by Jack Palance dealing with dementia and the crushing reality of his career ending.
1: Clown. That's what he thinks. Can't you think a thought for yourself? It's what I think, too. It's what everybody out there's gonna think. Clown. Mace. Mace, don't make me. What do you mean, don't make you? What, I mean, your father or something don't make you? You don't do anything you don't want to do. If you don't think you owe me, okay. Hey, Mace, how about a couple of pictures? We ain't had any with the costume yet. Pictures? All part of the build-up, kid. One picture's worth a million words. That's what the Greeks say. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what do you want? i out here in the hall. Well, out in the hall, I think. We got more room. So? What are you waiting for, Valet? Come on, let's hurry it up. I'll be right there, Mr. Prowley. But on next! Let's go! Mace, tell him to go away. What do you mean, tell him to go away? Hey, what's going on? What are you Come on, get your boy out here. The, the photographer's waiting for him. His match is on. He'll be right out there, Mr. Prowley. He'll be right there. Listen, you walk out of me now and I'm dead. You understand? I'm dead. I can't, Mace. You got, I can't. Dead, mister. You owe me. Mace, listen, you got my life on a line now. I can't afford to let you cross me. I'll beat you to a pulp myself. I wouldn't be in this jam if it wasn't for you. I shall do anything you want, but I can't, I can't. It bothers you too much, doesn't it, huh? Well, it didn't bother you last week to stand in the middle of the ring with your hands at your sides and let Gibbons beat you to a pulp for seven rounds. It didn't bother you a bit, did it? It didn't bother you that I put all my money on you and said you wouldn't go for three... You bet against me? why did you bet against me? Would it make any difference, kid? If I hot my left foot and betted on you, would it make any difference? You're not a winner anymore. There's only one thing left make a little on the losing.
0: The public response rivaled that of Patterns. It swept the 1956 Emmy Awards, winning Best Show of the Year, Best Direction, Best Performance for Jack Palance, and Best Art Direction. Serling was awarded the Sylvania Award, the Television Writer's Annual Award for Writing Achievement, and the George Foster Peabody Award. Like Patterns, the script was turned into a film six years later. Both artistically And financially, Serling had become a remarkably successful man. Despite this, Serling grew frustrated with the constraints that were being placed on him by networks and their advertising partners. He had multiple scripts that he was told would need major rewrites before they could ever make it to air. These changes ranged from not using the words American and Lucky, because the tobacco company that sponsored the show was concerned it might remind viewers of rival cigarette companies, Or the line, got a match, being removed because the sponsor was Ronson Lighters. Perhaps the most damning moment came when Serling submitted the script for Noon on Doomsday, which featured a violent neurotic who kills an elderly Jew and is then acquitted by the residents of the small town he lives in. As Zickri writes, quote, Before the show was broadcast, a reporter asked Serling if the script was based on the Emmett Till case, in which a black 14-year-old boy was kidnapped and murdered in Mississippi, and the murderers were acquitted by an all-white local jury. Serling's reply, If the shoe fits. The network and their sponsors demanded major changes to the script. The town was moved from the south to an unnamed town, New England. The murdered Jew was changed to an unspecified foreigner. The word lynch was deleted from the script. Characters referred to their home as, quote, a strange little town, or a perverse little town, so that viewers would not identify with it. The neurotic killer was changed to a good, decent American boy gone momentarily wrong. By the time the episode aired, it was watered down to the point that it was unrecognizable, and ultimately, meaningless. Serling faced similar experiences with three other scripts, and by 1957, he had produced an alternative solution. What about science fiction? What if he moved the setting of these stories to the future, or populated them with robots or aliens? Producer Dick Berg comments, He had much on his mind politically and in terms of social condition, and science fiction gave him much flexibility in developing those themes. It would allow him to do whatever he wanted. He could make anything fit within that framework. So it became a natural habitat for him, creatively. So, in 1957, Serling pulled out a script called The Time Element that he had written after graduating college, expanded it to an hour, and had his secretary type these words on the front page. The Twilight Zone. CBS bought the script, but shelved it immediately. It would have remained on that shelf if it were not for the efforts of producer Burt Granite. Granite was working as the producer for the Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse for CBS. He wanted this show to feature the best of the best, and naturally, Serling fit the bill. The two met, and Serling informed Granite that he had already sold CBS's script that they were not using. Granite bought the script and began to move forward on production of the time element for the Desilu Playhouse. While Serling faced a few difficulties getting his script to air unaltered, the production moved ahead, and in November of 1958, the time element aired on CBS. The script followed a young man who seeks guidance from a psychiatrist to help with his recurring dream. In this dream, the young man finds himself in Honolulu the day before the attack on Pearl Harbor. He tries valiantly to warn people of the impending attack but he is unsuccessful. Near the end of the episode the young man falls asleep on the psychiatrist's couch and finds himself once again in the dream. However, it is now the morning of the attack and the dream ends with the sounds of approaching planes, explosions, and rubble falling all around the young man. The show cuts back to the psychiatrist who is now alone in his office. He's unsettled but doesn't seem to know why. He decides to go to a bar to order a drink to steady himself. Behind the bar, he sees a picture of the young man. He says to the bartender, Who is that? He looks familiar. The bartender answers, Oh, that's Pete. He used to work here. Where is he now? The psychiatrist asks. Oh, he's dead, the bartender says. He was killed at Pearl Harbor fade to black. The Time Element received more mail than any other episode of Desilu Playhouse that year, and reviews were universally positive. CBS decided they needed a pilot for the Twilight Zone. Serling's first script for the pilot, called The Happy Place, about a society that executed its citizens once they reached the age of sixty due to their obsolescence, was rejected for being too depressing and unlikely to sell the series. Interestingly, A variation on this idea would see the light of day in William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson's novel, Logan's Run, where citizens are executed at 21 to maintain population levels and to manage natural resources. That novel was adapted into the 1976 film, Logan's Run, that went on to become a cult classic. While his first script proved too dark for executives, Serling's second pilot script, titled Where Is Everybody, fit the bill. It was utterly straightforward, dealing with an amnesiac who cannot find any other people in a small town. The script was a rational one, dressed up as science fiction, and Sterling believed that this would sell the series to executives who were afraid of taking a risk on a science fiction series. And he was right. Within two months, a deal was struck, and production began on the first season. On our next episode, we'll be looking at the legendary pilot, Where Is Everybody?, as we begin our journey into the Twilight Zone. <music> Don't forget to follow us on social media at Secret Cinema Society Podcast on Instagram and at SCS Hotline on Twitter. You can also support the show by visiting patreon.com slash secret cinema society and get some fun extras while you're at it. Finally, you can call the secret cinema hotline and leave a message of support or a devastating insult at 615-200-8210. You can also use any of these methods to contact me about being a guest on the show. Have a favorite episode you want to talk about? Do you not have a favorite but still want to be on the show? Then send me a message. Thanks for listening, everyone. And take care.